when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I'm talking to Bari Williams, a legal and operations advisor to tech company who focuses on AI and diversity. And this conversation really started with sports news, NFL news. Earlier this month, Brian Flores, the former coach of the Miami Dolphins, sued the NFL for racial discrimination. Flores is black, and even though he had built a winning record at the Dolphins and the players seemed to like him, he was still fired. He claims the team was unhappy he wouldn't tank games to get better draft picks. He also claimed that black coaches have fewer opportunities and get fired from those opportunities more quickly than white coaches. As I was reading the case, one thing really jumped out at me. Since 2003, the NFL has had something called the Rooney Rule, which requires teams to interview minority candidates for head coaching jobs before they make a hire. Flores claims that he was given a sham interview by the New York Giants merely to fulfill that Rooney Rule requirement. His complaint actually has a screenshot of a text from Bill Belichick congratulating him on getting the Giants job three days before his interview. Belichick realized he was texting the wrong person. It is all pretty shocking. And overall, there are fewer black head coaches in the league since the Rooney Rule was imposed than before. The reason I bring this all up is that the Rooney Rule is often cited as an example of a worthwhile diversity initiative, something that other companies should try and emulate. But here, it seems to have failed in catastrophic fashion. I wanted to understand why. And it's important to understand why. As Decoder listeners probably already know, the world's biggest companies have a diversity problem. There are only four black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, four out of 500. Those companies struggle to retain and promote black talent. And attrition of black talent in tech might even be increasing. The attrition of black women from Google, for instance, jumped last year. And there have been extremely high-profile exits of black talent from places like Pinterest and Coinbase as well. It's also important to point out that having a diverse workforce isn't just diversity for diversity's sake. There are good business reasons to invest in it. According to McKinsey, companies in the top quartile for gender diversity on executive teams were 25% more likely to have above-average profitability than companies in the fourth quartile. 
And in the case of ethnic and cultural diversity, top quartile companies outperformed those in the fourth one by 36% in profitability. So if you want your company to succeed, a diverse workforce is an important piece of the puzzle. So I asked Barry Williams to come on Decoder and talk about all of that. Before she became a consultant, Bari was lead counsel at Facebook. She supported the company's internet connectivity efforts. She had a project diversifying the company's supply chain. After that, Bari went to StubHub, where she was head of business operations management from North America. Then she was a VP of legal and policy affairs at an AI startup studio called All Turtles. Most recently, she was COO of a data and identity analytics company called Bandwagon Fan Club. But now she's independent, a business of one. I wanted to know why she decided to leave being a tech executive behind and make the shift to diversity work. Here's how she explains it. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a shift. I think it's a both and, not an either or. For me, I think the shift, if, if we can call it that, is sometimes you get people to be more agreeable when you are advising them as opposed to being an employee. And it's also why I kind of believe that you can do more good by advocating for diversity by not working in a diversity role, necessarily. I also wanted to know how Bari's business worked. What does she actually do for clients, and how does she measure success? She gave me an example. I did something for a company last year. I helped them start their own supplier diversity program, and I checked in once a quarter just to see how they were doing. And that was a finite project for a certain period of time. It took two and a half months in order to stand up their program to from soup to nuts, to go through the audit, to talk to the people that run their various supply chains. There are things that I label low-hanging fruit, medium size, and like untouchables. And going through that process and finding them replacements for the low-hanging fruit and the medium-hanging fruit. And then seeing them switch to those and, and kind of working them through the process of how to do that, even helping them craft appropriate RFPs for those, and then kind of let them fly. I continue to do check-ins once a quarter to see how they're doing, and they're doing great. It's been almost a year. Um, it'll be a year in March when all that was completed. They've replaced a good number of the low and medium hanging fruit, so I'm happy for them. One of the more surprising things Bari told me was that it's impossible to build a standard set of metrics to measure success. Because each company is different, but so is each industry. Software companies and pharmaceutical companies just can't be held to the same standard for everything. If you're speaking from a supplier diversity standpoint, they could be vastly different because there are going to be just certain things that you're not going to have within a pharmaceutical space. You're not going to have maybe a ton of women-owned businesses that can supply you with X ingredient. The other thing that's kind of a, an unspoken but very prevalent thing is... It, it's nepotism and it's glad handing and it's, oh, I didn't do any due diligence or no, we didn't do an RFP because, well, that's my brother-in-law's friend. And so he just referred him. And so we hired him. Like, do you know his credentials? What is he charging market rate? Have you talked to any of his prior customers to get any feedback? Like, how did you come to this decision other than, well, that's George's friend. Chad. So the, <laughs> so we hired him. Anyway, as you can tell from even that little exchange, there are no easy fixes in the type of work Bari is doing. And she's very aware of that. So she does a lot of diligence at the outset to make sure that if she's going to advise a company, they actually want to change. Before I decide to advise or work with anybody, I like to make sure that they're actively 
engaged and going to be participating in this work and that it's not you're asking me to come in and do a quick fix and put a Band-Aid on something. I'm not in the habit of putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds. So, you know, if you're not going to be participatory, I, I don't want to do it. Um, and essentially, it's they'll contact me and want to usually figure out one of two things. It's either recruiting or it's retention. Sometimes it's both. And what I tell people is that you're neglecting three other things when you're just focusing on employees. Diversity, I always call it a four-legged stool model. So you have employees, you have your customers, you have your suppliers, and you have your board members. People always forget about the last two and they definitely forget about board members. Okay, now I've got a little background on what Bari does. So we're gonna dive right into the bigger issues. Bari A. Williams, here we go. Bari Williams, you are a tech, legal, and operations advisor. You have a focus on diversity and AI. That's a fun combo. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you for having me. There's a lot to talk about. You and I are talking just the day after Brian Flores, the ex-head coach of the Miami Dolphins, sued the NFL for racial discrimination. There's an overwhelming amount of things to talk about in terms of how organizations and companies are structured and the processes we have to create level playing fields. But let's start with the Brian Flores news. I mentioned in our intro that Brian Flores was interviewing for the open head coaching job of the New York Giants, but it seems like he only got the interview because of the Rooney rule. The NFL is 70% black players, but when you get to the coaching staffs, offensive, defensive coordinators, head coaches, general managers, it's pretty much all white. So the Rooney rule, which says they are supposed to interview minority candidates for coaching positions, is often held up as a model. I hear from all kinds of companies that are going to have a Rooney rule-like system. But in this case, it turned out the Giants were only interviewing Flores because they had to, that's at least his allocation, and he had no shot of getting that job. Why do you think it played out this way? Because it's a box checker. It's not It's not a real mandate. It's, oh, yeah, of course we're going to interview some diverse candidates. Yeah, yeah, great. And then they go ahead, interview the person, and then end up hiring the, the white dude anyway. So for me, it's, it's interviewing in bad faith. That's essentially what it is. So what you're doing is you're not really interviewing this person because you want to give them the job or if you even think that they're capable. And the funny thing about that, and I did see that text, is that he he hadn't even interviewed yet. Yeah. So it's like you're congratulating, uh, I don't know what to call him, Brian Brian D. Brian Dable. Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah you're, you're, you're congratulating Brian D., but you're sending it accidentally to Brian F., who hasn't even interviewed yet. So at this point, you've already admitted that you have insider information, that you know this guy isn't getting the job. He's just checking a box. So if you're disingenuous in terms of why you're interviewing the person, you're going through the motions just to say that you did it. And that, to me, is what I feel like a lot of people do. It's like saying, oh, yeah, we interviewed somebody from San Jose State. But then we, you went ahead and inter, like hired the dude from Stanford. But how do you bring actual accountability to that? Because I, I think that's this story is explosive. I think it's going to have long-lasting effects for the NFL. But it is true that the Rooney rule has been held up as this model of 
we are going to make sure that our hiring pipeline is diverse and the exposure over time will fix the problem. We're going to force these people to seriously interview minority candidates. You can't tell, you know, the owner of an NFL team, keep your heart open, right? There's no way to like look in and see. So how do you, how do you bridge that gap? Because the promise of the Rooney rule is simply the exposure will make things better. We're going to, we're going to mandate this kind of exposure and this kind of conversation. It hasn't worked out, but I don't really know what the next step is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know necessarily that you can force people to have any type of accountability with that. I think the hard part with that is um, it's very much an insular club. It's, it's, it's analogous to tech in certain ways, but it's, it's very much who you know and what are your credentials in terms of where else have you been before? Who can I back channel to find out about you? And the problem is a lot of these, these diverse candidates are coming in and they don't necessarily have those same networks and those same connections. So even if they have a stellar interview and even if they got the interview via the Rooney rule, but then they knock it out of the park, there's a still a ding that no one is gonna actively say, well, but you don't know X, Y, and Z person, or you didn't study under this person, or you didn't coach at one of these SEC elite schools beforehand, or you didn't do insert thing you didn't do here because you don't have equitable access. And so I don't necessarily think exposure is enough. I mean, it's going to take actual results. And one thing that I always question is who's on these interview panels? And that's something that when I do advise companies or do trainings with them, I call that inclusive interviewing. If you have a list of standardized questions and you don't deviate from those, there has to be some type of standardization to ensure it's not just enough to give them the interview, it's what are you doing in the interview? Who's on the interview panel? How are you rating and assessing these interviews after the fact? Are players involved in helping make this decision or is it just left to the front office? Because the players are the ones that are gonna have to deal with this person the majority of the time. And I would be very curious to understand like how many if any of, of you know that 70% of black players in the league are getting the chance to participate in some of these interview rounds and how often and how many of them. So I think it's not just exposure, but you're gonna have to have some kind of inclusive standardization of how you're interviewing these people. And that goes just as, just as well in tech. Like there shouldn't be deviation in interviews talking about personal life or one that's like, you're not supposed to ask people about their personal lives in interviews, but just to ensure that there is just like a sliver of, you know, some equity to make sure that people are going to be judged equally to the best of your ability. You have to make sure that people are answering the same questions and then you can rate answer for answer. Like if Brian Flores said something ridiculous about maybe a hypothetical play call and Brian D answered it wonderfully, then sure, then that's fair. But if it turned into something else where, you know, they're shooting the shit, I, I mean, I don't, that's not a fair interview. Yeah. Let me bring this to tech. Cause I could talk about the NFL and this lawsuit all day and all night. I could too. I think one of the things that happens particularly to young leaders at companies is they have a negative connotation around their diversity person or their HR person. You see them coming and you know it's bad news. 
or you're going to be made slow. And now you have to sit through some training and we're all remote. So the training is just like you're in your house and you're watching a video where someone is telling you you're not doing a good job or you should feel bad. <laughs> often the proposals that I've heard often look like the Rooney rule, which the reason that I'm so interested in it is because now we see what kind of failure it is when it's not yeah. taken seriously. But then when it comes to tech, one thing that just leaps out at me is tech is diverse, but not in the way that we want it to be. 53% of Facebook's technical roles are Asian people. I'm meta. I don't see that diversity reflected in their product. I don't use any of meta's products and think, wow, this company is diverse. It actually has more people of color in it than not. And there's just a disconnect there that I've never been able to wrap my head around. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I do appreciate that you're calling that out in terms of how diversity impacts the how a product is actually made. I mean, you could even see something like that just as simple in terms of like beta testing. Like, did anybody beta test this before you shipped it? Because it doesn't work. Um, I, that's a good question around the disconnect that there are more people of color when you look at it in terms of Asian population. But that's also, you could say the same thing. I went to Cal. You could say the same thing about the UC system. Mm -hmm. But I think what, what people are aiming for is to see more diversity within that diversity, if that makes sense. But I think there's another layer to this that isn't necessarily looked at. That's great that a company could be 53% over-indexing people of color, but where do they sit within the organization? Meaning, what is their level? Be are they are they directors and above? Are they VPs? Like that to me is the other piece that's missing from this is that we can talk all day about the diversity numbers within your company, but if you're not actively looking at the leveling of those diverse folks within your company, that's a problem. That's also when you look at a company and they say, oh well, we're you know we're thirty percent women. Great. What departments are they in? The beneficial elements of diversity are found on individual teams in, in those departments. So if your company is 30% women, but 85% of that 30% is in HR, that's not really going to give you, to your point, that's not going to give you the product differential that you're looking for. Also, just something as simple as like testing something. I did a segment last night talking about policing and AI and the use of facial recognition technology, which in black women have the highest false match rates. So if you have grainy footage of somebody on a security camera and you're running it against a database that has my driver's license and maybe I changed my hair that day and you come knock on my door, I'm, I'm gonna say, that's not me. But are you gonna believe me? Probably not. But also who built that product? And who did they build it for and who did they build it with? And what was the basis that they started with in order to design that product? So that's what I mean when you're talking about having to have diversity in all elements and it needs to be all throughout the fabric of your company. It can't just be segmented into one population or one department or one team. It has to be throughout. So I understand what you mean by saying, yes, there's an essentially an over-index and particularly, you said engineering, right? The engineering team? Facebook just labels them technical roles. Yeah, that's probably engineers, PMs, um, design to a certain extent, et cetera. But yeah, I wouldn't say that necessarily that does come out in the product design. But I also feel like you can't necessarily throw all Asians in a 
in a group because they're segmented. I mean, what would be the population of Filipinos that are grouped into there? I'm guessing it's going to be a very small number as opposed to, you know, maybe Southeast Asian or Chinese. It's just it's just going to be different. And all of them are going to have different lived experiences. And I think there's also we could go deep on this all day long, but there's also kind of a an element of the ability and ease for some groups to assimilate more than others. And so that's going to come out in terms of the access that they're given to certain things or, or certain people even and how they handle product design. Yeah, I mean, this to me is the heart of it, right? And maybe I'll ask this question a little bit more specifically, maybe a little bit more controversially. It seems like when we are talking about diversity for tech companies in particular, we are almost exclusively talking about men and women and the gender split. And we are definitely talking about black people and Latino people. And we are very rarely talking about South Asian people or Asian people because they have managed, those groups have managed to kind of succeed in large numbers. And I'm wondering if you think it's dangerous to talk about it that way, or is it better to just acknowledge that this is actually the problem? Yeah, I know. I like to call a thing a thing. And so I have no problem saying like, what we're actively talking about is representational diversity for primarily, you know, the most marginalized groups that this nation has seen, period. I mean, it's a group of people where you essentially annexed like half of the country by taking their land. <laughs> it's another group that you enslaved them to essentially kickstart this whole thing. So to me, I, I'm totally fine calling a thing a thing. But I think that um, there are nuances even within that. So when people talk about black and tech, I would I can't give you an actual breakdown of that. The, the majority of people who are black in tech are not black American descendants of slaves. They are first and second generation West Africans for the most part and some some East Africans as well. But that is going to make up the bulk of your black in tech. It's not people that are necessarily like me. And that isn't to say that that is bad or it's wrong, but I think that there is just a different culture in terms of assimilation and access and what it is that they're able to do that some of us may not be able to do. And I think that there is a ton of cultural nuance that is set around that. Yeah. I think that my question is really two thoughts at once. I think the question I have, and I think people listening to this probably have is how do you balance all of those tensions and come out with something that lets you as somebody seeking a job, evaluate the company you're going into. And as somebody, I think we have lots of people who want to be managers listening to this, who are managers, who are executives. How do you make those decisions fairly without raising those red flags? Yeah, I think to what level? I I wouldn't get super granular on something like that. Yeah, I think the answer to your point is, yes, we want to understand gender or, you know, If someone is not binary, we want to understand all of those things. So I would say if you're coming down to basics, right, it's race, gender, I would throw age in there because particularly if we're talking about tech, it's like once you hit 38-ish, people start side-eyeing you. Oh, my God. Move along, grandma. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out. 
<laughs> right. So I would look at that as well, because tech is always thought of as like a young person's industry. And it's like once you hit 38, 39, people really are like, mm, can they really innovate, though? And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would say in uh, sexual orientation, if that's if people feel comfortable disclosing that. And I say those to me are basics. If people want to talk about their country of origin, I would maybe take it a layer there and then done. Because I think once you start slicing and dicing to your point, it does begin to feel like a tit for tat. And there are some intraracial conversations that go on about this. I've had this conversation a ton of times in terms of like black in tech and what does that actually mean? And if we're talking about representation, it's like, yeah, but there's some some issues or intention around that where it's like, okay, well, these are not black descendants of slaves who are taking the majority of these roles. So what does that mean in terms of adequate representation of black in tech? Or now how are we defining black? We can go down this rabbit hole all day long. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. But I'm saying no one should go down that rabbit hole. That's what I mean. And so if you're really trying to just come out with something that is clean and digestible at the end of the day, I would say segment it just to yeah. at least race to country of origin. People are comfortable with that and move on. Okay. Well, I, the reason I wanted to spend some time on that is that is the situation in tech. It is not necessarily the situation in other industries, mm -hmm. but it is very much the situation in tech that you have kind of oddly, like a number of huge companies led by South Asian men. They have kind of like entirely white management layers underneath them. And then they are trying to diversify in lower layers of the stack. And I say the stack, I mean, customer service is easy to diversify, <laughs> right? Like um, custodial services, they're able right. to diversify and they kind of bundle those numbers together. But you started out by saying you also work in AI and that is... There's a lot of those functions that are just going to disappear for a lot of companies over time. Oh, so yeah, how yeah. do you see that? Because I, that flywheel for decision makers now is going to get very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a McKinsey report where uh, it was talking about AI automation and robotics is going to take 5 million jobs from black Americans by the year 2030. And I think... Uh, there was a separate one for Latinx, and I think that was around 7 million. And so that begs the question of like, what is the responsibility, if any, of some of these companies to engage and help with job retraining skills? Or, you know, or deciding that you're going to recruit a different way for different positions from different places. Like, does everyone have to go to Stanford or can you take somebody from a coding boot camp? And and what what is the responsibility of, you know, some of these private companies to work with, you know, the government to handle some kind of public private partnerships in order to, you know, guarantee that you're not going to see a mass windfall of like 12 to 15 million people who are basically unemployed and to a certain extent may be deemed unemployable. So how do you rectify that? And is that the job of the company? You see people wear five, six, seven different hats within their, their their lifespan at a company because that's just the nature of what the business may need as it evolves. Why can't you do that with someone who didn't go to Georgia Tech but may still want to learn and you afford them the ability to learn on the job? Maybe they spend half of their time doing something that they already know how to do 
that you may be phasing out and the other 50% of their time training them to do something else that you know that you need or it may evolve into that direction. So I think there's going to there's going to have to be a kind of a reckoning in terms of a more creative way of how you go about finding talent and retaining the talent and and training the talent. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we talk about the diversity pledges made by big companies in the past few years and whether they've delivered on any of those promises. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with diversity consultant Barry Williams. In the summer of 2020, after worldwide protests following the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, lots of companies made pledges to improve their diversity. I, man, I could go on all day about them pledges. Go, go <laughs> like, ahead. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. So that's great. I pledge I'm going to work out today. And then I'll self-audit and come back and tell you <laughs> if I did it. <laughs> That's how we're going to do this. That's basically what they did. Uh, we're really sorry, Blacks. We're going to throw some money at some stuff. We're going to donate to some organizations. We pledge to have a 25% you know, d- diverse workforce by the year 2089 or whatever year they said. For yeah. some, I think it was 2025 or something. Some were 2025, some were 2030. 
and then we're going to invest in founders and do more more you know business with diverse suppliers. All of that sounds great. It's been a year and a half. I would like to actually see what some of these companies have done. I know the Fast Company did a report on that last summer based on some of the things that some of the companies reported out. But what's interesting to me is that a lot of those pledges were threefold. It had to do with employees. It had to do with suppliers. It had to do with community engagement, meaning donations. And some of them only reported on one. Well, what happened to the other two? Have you made any progress on those? Have you even started? And my issue with the pledges is, particularly around the self-audit function of this, that's how this dovetails. If you're going to tell me, this is what I pledged to do, but I'm going to self-audit and then come back and tell you what I did. No one from the outside needs to come in and see this. I'm just going to tell you what I did. That means you're going to cherry pick. And that to me, isn't that's an incomplete picture. Th that makes no sense to me. In order to authentically and accurately say that this is the progress that you made, if any, you need to have outside auditors come in and assess this. Yeah. And I'm just not certain. I mean, I, I have high hopes, but I'm also curious who's handling all of this work. Who's handling all of these pledges? Is that something that the diversity team at these companies is tasked with? And if so, that's this is in addition to the stuff that they're already supposed to be working on, right? So, you know, who's actively managing this? But you don't see a connection. Like, it, to me, they all made the pledges, and yep, they're all self-auditing, which is... Very good. Um, but it just seems like the opportunity of, boy, we've just, we can distribute our workforce. We can retain people who feel unhappy in this office by letting them move wherever they want. And we can start recruiting in areas. We've brought up Atlanta several times now. Atlanta has a burgeoning tech scene, right? We can invest in Atlanta and say lots of, we can recruit here and you can work here. You don't have to move to our spaceship campus in California. I just don't see the connection between the two. It doesn't seem like they've taken the easiest possible answer, which is everybody is working remotely or you can support a more remote workforce in this country. And that can really help your diversity problem. Yeah, I think that's definitely the answer. People just haven't embraced it yet. And I think a, a, I think part of it, though, is just practical in the sense of of real estate. Like if you're Google and, and Facebook and Apple, you didn't spend all of that money on all of these buildings for people to not be in them. So I think just from a practical standpoint, I completely agree with you that I don't think the majority of people want to go back to an office, at least not five days a week, maybe two or three. But I think to some extent, there's no way for them to let go of these these buildings and in order to justify retaining them, you got to fill them. So I, my guess is there will be some, some, and that's why what I've seen so far with some of these companies is some of the positions are allowed to, to remain remote and some have to be in office. So I think that's probably what you're going to see continue to happen. It's, it's an interesting spot from Facebook's standpoint. They bought up a ton of land and buildings surrounding well, they had the first main campus, which was the old Sun Microsystems campus. Then they branched out with the Building 20 across the street. Then they kept going further and further down the blocks into like East Palo Alto. So now you also have a gentrification narrative where it's like all these people got pushed out and left for buildings that are sitting empty. 
that's not like the story that I think anybody wants to tell. <laughs> so <laughs> my guess is, is if some people are going to have to come back. We were just talking about Google, Facebook, and Apple wanting to keep people in their offices, but these companies are almost like a gradient, right? You start at the bottom levels and maybe they're a little more diverse there. And then as you slowly look towards the top of a company, it just gets wider. Why do you think that is? I would say it's 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 twofold. So you have one issue around, um, again, it's going to be access and network. And the other part to that is it's going to be due to that access and network. Do you have a sponsor? And I think that gets lost in the shuffle for a good number of people is you may have a mentor, but a mentor and a sponsor are two different things. A sponsor is somebody that's going to talk you up and give you props in rooms where you're, you're not there and rooms that you may not even know exist. And people don't tend to have that, particularly, I would even say, particularly black women don't have that. There's some kind of level of uncomfortability with not wanting to sponsor or or even mentor someone who does not remind you of yourself. That, that was actually the thing that stuck with me during an unnamed VC's, I don't know, it was like a black history something two, three years ago. One of the the panelists had said something along the lines of, yeah, I love to, you know, I love to mentor people who remind me of myself. And I was like, that's a classic. Tell me how big your ego is without telling me how big your ego is. <laughs> and it's one of those things where, you know, if you don't have that proper training, um, for lack of a better word, and someone who is willing to talk about you in rooms and you're not there or invite you to rooms that, that you haven't been invited in, it's very hard to kind of get through that. That's a different glass ceiling of its own. It's very hard to get through that. And I think that's why you see people leave. Another aspect to this is just pure microaggression Olympic burnout. Like, there's only so many teach me how to Dougies you can hear in a day. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to, please don't touch my hair. Um, like, why are you asking me about affirmative action when I came to talk to you about indemnification? Like, <laughs> just all kinds of randomness. I mean, it's that microaggression Olympics that you're talking about, right? I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be rightfully skeptical that that adds up enough compared to the opportunities, right? If you're in the door at Google, maybe you just put up with it. Are you saying that it actually burns people out of it, like completely out of the industry? Um, it definitely can, or I know it could definitely burn you out from a company. Sure. Um, yeah. It may not burn you out of the industry, but it will burn you out of a company. And that is also where your retention problem comes from. Because a lot of these companies are not actively dealing with the source of the problem. Yeah. Instead, their suggestion is, well, why don't you move to a different department? Or why don't you try a different role on a different team? It's like, well, why don't you just deal with him who's been, say <laughs> who's been saying these things to people? Yeah. How about just do that? And so that's the other thing. Um, when you're talking about retention of black talent, there's also this kind of attitude of, well, you should just be happy to be here. Yeah. And that's so yeah, I that's should, what I'm pointing at. Yeah. Yeah. And so I should be able to talk to you however I feel and do whatever I want. And you should just accept it and, you know, assume good intent. Well, I'm not going to assume good intent if you keep doing that at least four times a week. I'm not the, like if you do that four times a week for years, there's no good intent left. 
that good intent was dead in the water after week number two at best. And so that will burn you out of a particular company. The answer is not to move the person who is the victim. The answer is to get rid of the problem or to have a conversation with the person who is the problem. And instead, what's made to happen is a lot of these employees are made to feel like them feeling slighted that they are the problem. Like, I'm just supposed to let you talk to me however you want, and that's going to be okay. And that's why I really, really respected. There were two black women at Pinterest, and they they had been harassed enough to the extent where they just were like, we just want to go. And they did. They had death threats. A private investigator was hired <laughs> to investigate them. Like, it, it was just, it was nuts. And all because they dared to complain that they weren't being treated equitably. Their careers were stalled. The, the whole thing of even getting a, a private investigator to investigate your employees who made a complaint against you is bananas to me. They decided that they, they were going to go out in a blaze of glory. And so you, sure, we'll sign whatever you tell us to sign just so we can go Pinterest. Great. Okay. Also, we're going to tweet about it and we don't care. So if you want to use your clawback clause in that and get your money back, sure. But now everybody knows how you treat people. Yeah. And that led to the, the Silence No More Act in California. Prior to that, it was pretty common for tech companies to make people sign NDAs in order to keep their severances, which prevented them from speaking out about harassment. Silence No More made it so that NDAs can't prevent employees from speaking out against racial discrimination. Yes, and one of them was helped write it. But uh, just in case anyone listening has any ideas, that is not retroactive. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, is, it is only good from January 1st of this year. We need to take one more break, but when we come back, we'll talk about whether remote work is helping or hurting the diversity situation. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. 
We're back. I want to talk about the shift to remote work. Just before the break, we were talking about how Apple, Google, and Meta are pushing for people to return to the office. You and I are both remote. We're not in offices. That is a huge trend. People don't want to go back to offices. Even in terms of our labor coverage of big companies, the reason a lot of it started was companies saying, you've got to come back. Google say, you got to come back. Apple say, you got to come back. People don't want to. Once you have a remote workforce, it seems like you can cut down a lot on that manager microaggression burnout and just say, here's the work I need you to deliver. Deliver it and actually diversify your workforce pretty quickly across the whole country as opposed to just some part of California. Is that playing out? I haven't necessarily seen results or stats on it yet, but I do agree with you. Well, I I think the managerial aspect of that can go both ways, right? If people are using a hybrid model, what happens to the people that are remote and are in these other locations? Like, let's say if I'm a black engineer and I want to stay in Atlanta, I don't want to come back to San Francisco. Well, what does that mean for the people that are engaging in a hybrid model that you can actively see and engage with on a Mm day-to-day basis? Is that person going to have more career trajectory possibilities than I would? even if we're both doing the same level of work and the same caliber of work. I think the other thing that is interesting about this is your, your excuses for hiring um, diverse candidates is out the window if they're not required to move. So if you want to hire a, you know, a woman software engineer in Columbus, Ohio, awesome. But is that woman in Columbus, Ohio, that's doing the same work as a woman engineer in San Francisco, are they being paid the same thing? And that's another kind of rub that I don't think people have necessarily worked out yet is are you paying for the the role or are you paying for the location? And the reason why that is interesting is that diverse populations, so you're talking about women, differently abled, racial, ethnic minorities, LGBTQ, all of those groups are historically underpaid. So now let's say you put one of them in you know, Canton, Ohio, if you're paying them Canton, Ohio rates and it's a woman and she's already technically underpaid, you're just kind of exacerbating that. So I think there are other things that they, that these companies need to be mindful of when, when they are hiring these folks that there's some kind of baseline that they're setting in terms of making sure that that's equitable. Yeah. Well, you've given us so much time. This has been a really fun conversation. Let me ask you one wrap-up question with an eye to the future. We've been in the middle of a two-year racial reckoning in America, right? We've seen it ebb and flow. We've seen it turn into debates about critical race theory in kindergartens. Like, it's oh my god, it's gotten a little out of hand, right? Do you think it's getting better and more sophisticated with, right? It's A lot of people are talking about it regardless. Maybe they're talking about completely the wrong or misinformed things, but there's a level of conversation that is happening now that has certainly not happened before in my lifetime. Is that going to help? Is that going to improve things? Is that going to make it easier for people to talk about diversity in a way that I think before it was, it was kind of tucked away? It, yeah. I mean, I will say, I think the transition for how all of this started to go happened on election night in 2016. And I think the result of that election was born out of some folks like 
really tired of the diversity that they saw in an administration and in a White House that they probably never thought they I never thought I would see it in my lifetime. So I was Mm -hmm. very pleasantly surprised. But then the pendulum swung all the way back and let all the people out and everyone felt emboldened to say whatever it is that they wanted to say at that point. And they're still doing it. So I think the conversations are easier to have in terms of initiation. I do not think they are easier in terms of actually reaching people and to get them to listen or have them be amenable to changing people's mind. And I think the reason why is that the Trump presidency allowed people to say all of the quiet parts out loud now. And I could... (laughs) I could share screenshots of the emails that I get that have called me all kinds of interesting things and some with their names attached and some still not, but people just feel emboldened to say whatever it is that they want. And I understand that, but it is not necessarily useful discourse so much as it feels like it's screaming into the void. Yeah. This is great. I can keep talking about this with you forever. I am glad you're doing the work. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Bari. Likewise. Have a good one. Thanks again to Bari Williams for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.